Support for this podcast comes from PayPal. Small business owner, PayPal QR codes are the safe and easy payment option. It's all the security PayPal is known for online, in person. Cash only, QR codes allow you to accept credit or debit with everyday low fees. No additional hardware or software needed. Use the app to generate your unique QR code. Customers scan your code with their PayPal app to pay you. Learn more at paypal.com slash US slash get QR code. This is episode number 12 with our guest, Charlene Feathers. On today's episode... It's almost like I had like dozens and dozens and dozens of heavy coats on, but underneath I had on like something beautiful. And so I was always aware that there was something beautiful underneath all of that stuff. And I would hear it from time to time. I would dream it from time to time. I would imagine it from time to time. Welcome to the Hidden Entrepreneur Show. My name is Josh Carey. You want in on a little secret? I was in hiding for 40 years. Yeah, I was hiding every part of myself in every situation. And I can tell you one thing, hiding sucks. I'm now on a mission to help extraordinary people like yourself rediscover the world around you, connect beautifully with others, and excel tremendously in all you set out to do. Join in. It's The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. My guest is my new hero. Seriously, and here's why. We've all been through a variety of struggles and adversity throughout childhood and our teenage years, right? When things happen, it's common for a child or young adult to keep it all locked up to themselves. It's often difficult to process or make sense of why things are happening to you the way they are. And so you begin to think it's your fault or you must have done something wrong to provoke or cause the atrocious behavior. Those were the very thoughts of our guest today. Meet Charlene Feathers. Today, Charlene is a brilliant and successful coach, speaker, and author who helps so many find the peace and success they are desperately seeking. She's my hero because, as you'll hear from her story, She spent years and years covering up and feeling guilt and shame for the tremendous abuse she endured in her life. Now, this was everything from physical abuse multiple times at a young age, which led to her living in foster care while not even knowing or understanding why she was there in the first place, to emotional abuse and sexual abuse. Charlene was able to finally peel off the layers of that guilt and shame to become the very person she knew she was all along. This is a story you don't want to miss and a story filled with determination. And it's one you'll agree could have had a complete different ending. Here we go. Hey there, hey there. Welcome in to the studio. It's the Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Look at the beautiful on-air button doing its thing. I am your host, Josh Carey, ready to do my thing. Thanks for tuning in. 
My guest today is Charlene Feathers, who bills herself as an intentional living coach, also as a speaker, an author, and a poet. Well, you certainly have my attention. Let's dive right into this and get to the root of all that is amazing right here, right now. It's Charlene Feathers. How are you? How are you, Charlene? I am well. How are you? I am also very well. You, you have it written that you help people develop intentional living practices. What exactly is that? What does that mean? You know, well, it's living on purpose. Like that's the short of it. A lot of people let life happen to them and then they react. But if you're living on purpose, that means you're connecting with why you're here in the first place. And then you build out plans so that you can be proactive about accomplishing your goals, your purpose, your dreams, et cetera. That sounds fantastic and magnificent. What if I don't know whether I am or am not living on purpose? How do I know? Well, that happens through conversations. But if you observe on your own, then you'll just notice that you have something inside of you that you are just yearning to do. Or it could be that you're trying to press past something that happened in your past, some pain, some hurts, and it just keeps seeming to plague you. And there's, quote unquote, nothing you can do about it. No matter what I do, this always happens. No matter what I do, I can never get ahead. If those kinds of things resonate, those kinds of things are things that someone typically hears themselves saying, then it's probably true that life is happening to them and that they have an opportunity to take a more proactive stance in their life. And what kind of things do we do in that regard? Is it how we approach things, how we spend our time, how we react to things? How do we navigate through that? Navigate through living on, from, from living reactively to proactively? Yes. Um, it's about, I call it building systems. So um, by trade, I used to be a project manager. And so that's about, you know, and, and, a, a, an, a, and an analyst. So it's about building systems to uh, create a pathway to whatever goal we have. So if I'm trying to move from, pro, from reactive living to proactive, then I have to build systems for myself. And what that would mean is um, paying attention to myself. What, what makes me go off? What triggers me? What makes me start to feel like my buttons are being pushed? What do I do in those instances? What do I feel after I do those things in those instances? And what do I want to see differently? What do I want to see done differently? And so then really starting to build those systems in my life so that I can know what to do when I start to feel those buttons being pushed. What do I do? Who do I call? What type of activity do I engage in? Do I walk away? Do I journal? Do I run? Do I swim? Different things that's specific to that person that will help them get back into a place where they can keep their mindset focused and on purpose, on target. It seems like that would take uh, a bit of personal responsibility and accountability to really uh, embrace the fact that, you know what, I'm anger and the onus is on me, not justifying it and saying, but they did X, Y, and Z, so I'm going to get angry and I, you can't tell me any differently. What do you we do hit, about that? You hit the nail on the head. Personal responsibility is top of the list. 
I can't, if I'm pointing at everybody else, then I'm not ready. Because if I'm reading it as somebody else's problem or it's their fault, then that means I'm also looking for them to solve it or resolve it. But when I start owning it and saying, you know what? Yeah, they did something that was incorrect, you know, inappropriate, whatever. And I have a responsibility to manage myself in this situation. When I start taking it there, then I empower myself to actually do something about it. I, it, yeah, yeah, I can totally, totally relate. Um, I, I, I spent a great deal of my life uh, in that reactive state, feeling triggered, feeling angered from everybody else. And when you're deep into that, you just don't know any differently and nobody can tell you any differently. So someone like you, it's fantastic being able to shine the light and getting someone to the place of, you know what? put the onus on you. It's almost like if somebody wrongs you, you want to forgive them. That's sort of the same concept. Why you're not forgiving them for them, you're forgiving them for you. Similar thing? Absolutely similar, yeah. And, and there's this mysticism applied to forgiveness because nobody can really tell you how or where that happens or what that comes from when we do it. But you, you said it perfectly. It's, it's really a releasing. I am going to, you owe me an apology or you owe me whatever you owe me, but I'm going to release my expectation. Doesn't mean that they perhaps don't still have a responsibility in the situation, but I'm going to release my expectations of you because I have to heal. I have to move forward. I've got to accomplish my purpose. and I can't be stuck here waiting for you to give me the go ahead by, you know, whatever, apologizing or giving me what you owe me. Mm. Now, I also know you, you recently really released your first book that is designed to help people who have been plagued by the effects of church hurt. Yes. What is, what is church hurt? Oh, my gosh. First of all, church hurt is controversial, okay? Because okay, let's go. <laughs> because there's so many people who don't even like the term, but essentially, um, it's, when someone is within a religious community and there's all of, there's this um, book, the Bible, that's supposed to govern how we relate to one another, but because different people have their interpretations of what it means, it doesn't necessarily, it's, it's lightly referenced in interactions. And so because we're humans, we get into one place and then there's this, um, this hierarchy that exists. And when that hierarchy becomes, um, uh, when people fulfill those positions that are kind of power hungry or not aware of what they should do with the authority and the power that they have, then people get hurt. And this is abusive situations. It's not just someone correcting a wrong or an error. It's um, insisting that someone devote their time specifically to uh, a task for that church, or it's uh, telling folks that because you're of this gender or, you know, of this, um, uh, identity or what are in this uh, income bracket, you can't do X, Y, and Z. It's just a system of really oppressive actions and attitudes that can, can weigh heavily on a person when you're in there vulnerable and saying, I'm ready to be loved. I'm ready to be accepted. I'm ready to be embraced. And, and you're instead met with everything that I just said, plus a whole bunch of stuff that I haven't mentioned. Yeah. And um, I, I, I know that that can happen, like you said, through the church, but it can also happen in every single relationship in our lives. How did you arrive to all this? I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you, you experienced this for yourself. 
Absolutely. I saw it happening to others and I experienced it myself. And I have always had this um, personality where I'm speaking up and I'm speaking out about things, but not in a way to be aggressive, more so in a way to, I'm curious, what, what is this? This doesn't seem to match what we said we represent. This doesn't seem to match what we said we're, we stand for. So how do we deal with this? And the response that I got is most of all where the church hurt started for me, you know, um, where folks did not appreciate my speaking up. And that's when I got, you know, um, isolated and, and, and pushed away and re- restrained and held back and different things. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. And really quickly, you know, it does happen in every space that we go into relationship, the grocery store, we can, and when we're in the line at our favorite coffee shop, um, but there's no expectation in those places. You know, there's no expectation at my job that you do anything but give me a paycheck. But when I go into the church community, there is an expectation that there's some degree of, of, of like I said, acceptance and, and welcoming and embracing, and that we're to be in a community, communing with each other in love. And when that doesn't happen, it can completely throw you because you don't just get something slightly different. In a lot of cases, there's abuse. So abuse where you're expecting acceptance can be really, really impactful. Hmm. You, you sound like a, a voice, a savior for those in pain. My, that's actually my goal is to be more of a guide. You know, I, I call myself the modern day Harriet Tubman because I've been through a lot of things and I've had to do a lot of introspection and kind of like what we were talking about before, discovering me and learning me and finding out how to navigate those painful places. And because I've been able to do that, I can help somebody else through it and let them know, yeah, this is going to be, this is going to be a doozy. And if we stick with it, you're going to see some results. You're going to, you know, things are going to start looking and being better for you. I love that you said this is going to be a doozy because none of this work is easy. Uh, And we've all been through pain, lots of pain on on many different levels. I'd like to hear your story. Take us back to the beginning, if you will. Um, Charlene as a young, young child. Paint that picture for us. What What was that home life like? That home life, so I almost decided to reveal my nickname from a kid. I was like, I'll take you back to her life, but I'm going to do it. I'll take you back to Dinky. Um, that was my childhood nickname. What was it? Dinky? <laughs> yeah. All right, Dinky, what's up? I can't believe I did that. Um, so really, like, um, for the most part, my childhood was really cool. Like, you know, my mom and dad were in the house. I had my two sisters, tons of family around us. We had... We grew up in one of those neighborhoods in Oakland where, um, you know, the neighbors looked after other neighbors' children. So if we were doing something we weren't supposed to be doing, there was, you know, there was that chain of discipline that happened, you know. And then, of course, they told our parents. Um, So there was a lot of healthy interactions there. And then there were moments. um, I was physically abused by a family member and ended up uh, for a moment in foster care. Um, it was, it was not at at all like, you know, years, but I was in there for a while while they, you know, investigated and did what they did. Um, it confused me because when I came home, no one talked about it. All I knew is that 
the black eye I had was gone, you know, and everybody was looking at me funny, like, hey, glad you're back home. But I was like, okay, we didn't talk about it. And then another family member a few years later, um, same thing, but I didn't end up in foster care this time because the bruises weren't visible. Um, uh, I was, you know, choked out, but the bruises were not visible. So no one, no other adult saw it and called the authorities. Um, so that was kind of like the, 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 the secret, what do they call it? The open secret. Um, and I was walking around really confused about what that was. And since no one talked about it, I decided, well, that must've been my fault. I must've done something I wasn't supposed to do. And that's what happens to you when you do stuff you're not supposed to do. Um, and then, um, Fast forward a little to my teenage years, um, I had an uncle who took, you know, he was like, oh, well, I'll take her and bring her because he lived in another state and so brought me out for the summer. And it was an interesting experience, met a lot of new people, was introduced uh, to the little church world because he's very, very um, into church. And um, on my last day there, um, I was sexually assaulted um, by a young man that he, my uncle had actually, uh, invited to spend the night. It was one of the young men that he mentored and in the middle of the night, he sexually assaulted me, but he told everyone that it was consensual. Like he confessed to us consensually having sex. And again, no one said anything to me. I got in so much trouble, but no one ever stops to say what happened. So things are piling up in me that's saying, you know what, somehow you're doing something because you're not supposed to be doing, because you keep getting punished for it, because I got in trouble for, for getting raped. Um, but no one knew that that's what it was. And, and so I had this cone of silence that I learned to live in. Um, the last instance of being assaulted was actually a lot more violent than any of the other ones. And this time I said, I didn't say anything. N no one really noticed, like one person noticed something different, but no one noticed uh, enough to say anything. There was no confession from the violator. There was no bruise that was visible. Um, so I said nothing. And so all of these years I'm walking around and there were other little things here and there, instances of abuse from uh, some of the same family members. And so I'm walking around holding all of this. And so it's translated to me as this is my fault. I've done something. There's something wrong with me. Um, and so going back into the church, when those things started happening to me there, I started applying the same excuses to excuse what was happening. Um, I'm doing something. It's my fault. So every time something would happen, I would go into this deep moment of, okay, Charlene, what are you doing? What, you shouldn't be. What, what are, aren't you doing that you should be? And, you know, this whole thing. And so there was anyone that's in a cycle or a pattern of abuse and I, I don't want to speak generally, I, I, I believe that anyone who's in that can take on blame and it's not theirs to take, but we take it on because we don't have anywhere else to put it. You know, if there's no advocate, if there's no one speaking up for you saying they shouldn't have done that, they were wrong, you are absolutely correct, it shouldn't have happened to you. And, you know, if, even if I was in the place that I shouldn't have been, that shouldn't have happened to you, period. Um, so since those things don't happen, there's this weight of, you know, worthlessness. And this is what I wore for a lot of time. I wore shame. I wore guilt. I wore worthlessness. I wore 
bad, you know, like I'm a bad person, something's wrong. Um, so that's like what I walked around with in my teens, my early to mid twenties. And there was something else. It's almost like I had like dozens and dozens and dozens of heavy coats on, but underneath I had on like something beautiful. And so I was always aware that there was something beautiful underneath all of that stuff. And I would hear it from time to time. I would dream it from time to time. I would imagine it from time to time. And so that thread inside was enough for me to um, somewhere, I, don't, I wish I could pinpoint the day and time, um, somewhere to, to, to start digging for it beyond all of the shame and the guilt and the bad and the labels that I wore. Um, I started to dig and just discover who that is, who I am. Hmm. Well, first of all, thank you so much for opening up and uh, sharing all of that with us. I want to go back to a few key points here. Uh, mm-hmm. When you were first sent to foster care, how old were you? I was in the seventh grade, so 13. I yeah. Think. Okay. And uh, when you were there away from your, your family, as much as you could remember, what were your thoughts? What were you thinking? What in the world could you possibly have been making of all this? I was so scared. I was, I mean, I, the lady, I went to this house and the first thing she said to me when I, when she opened the door, if you run away, I'm going to call the police and they're going to take you to jail. I had no, I'm like, I'm jail. So that just like furthered the, 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 the guilt because I'm like, I must have done something wrong. Cause you know, to go from getting beat up to somebody else's house to jail, I was really afraid. And her house had a distinct odor that to this day, if I smell it, I'm like, it makes me think of her. It was just very sterile, very unwelcoming, unloving. So I was, I was afraid. Mm. How did you at that age, under those circumstances, how did you emotionally survive? What were you grasping, grasping onto in, in any regard to get through the days? At that age, I wish I could say that I, I survived. I think I made it through, you know what I mean? Like eked through because I kind of just, uh, in, what do you, I went into myself. Um, those days are really, really fuzzy. I just remember having to eat when it's time to eat, sleep when it's time to sleep. My bed had to be made a certain way. Like, I just remember very vague details about that time. I, I wasn't in there saying, I'm going to make it. I'm better than this. I was, I was afraid and I felt very, um, unwanted. I felt unwelcome. I was confused. It was a lot of not positive emotions happening. Hmm. And then you spend that, then you spend that summer with your uncle. And I, I can't imagine that on that, on that last night, that situation occurs. And like you said, it's framed where it was consensual and you, you just truly had no voice, right? You couldn't, you couldn't explain or change what people were saying or thinking. Yeah, because so back then, the term date rape, um, where it's that's 
where someone knows you, violates you, and has, you know, none of that was um, there. Rape back then was just somebody like jumping out somewhere, surprising you and, you know, violating you. So I didn't know what to even call it. I didn't know what to, I knew vividly me begging him to stop. I knew me vividly saying, no, 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 no. Vividly, I, but I didn't have any way to say something to them that would make them understand, no, this was, I was violated. This was not something I asked for. This was something I actually unasked for. I asked him to not do this. Um, I didn't know what to say. And, you know, again, back then, children were raised to speak when spoken to, be seen when not heard. So I had so many different um, toxic um, mindsets that I did not have that voice. I didn't have a way to say, listen to me. This is what really happened. Hmm. So, wow. So you get through all of this. And what happens after high school and college age? What was your path like at that point? I kind of went into my own destructive, toxic spiral. Um, I started making choices. In hindsight, I know that I was saying, okay, since you overpowered me then, I'm going to overpower you now. And so I thought that I would use myself as a power tool. You're going to want me, and I'm going to let you have just enough, but that's it. You're not going to get any more. Whatever I give you, that's what you get, and then I'm out. So I had this destructive spiral where I shared myself, if we can be decent in the mm-hmm. uh, interview, with far too many people. Um, but it was my way of feeling like I was more in control of something. And while that was a spiral downward, I think it also is a part of my ascension because there was a point when I realized this is not how I'm supposed to share me. I've got better things to share more. You know, that's not, um, that's not the best part of me. And really, I don't walk away feeling great in all of these interactions. So that's, that was kind of a part of me starting to seek for more. So were you, um, did you go to college? Were you working? Did you have career aspirations? At that time, sort of. So throughout my school year, I wanted to be a journalist. And in high school, um, like I was through all of this. I mean, I'm a A and B student, all of this, if you can believe it. So <laughs> managed to, to get that out there. And I had aspirations to be a journalist. And the program in my school um, was called the Media Academy. And so we we were working in print journalism, magazine and or newspaper, and we also had uh, broadcast media. So we were able to do a lot of different things through journalism, and we visited a lot of different news places. We talked to these newscasters and famous journalists, and just it was an amazing experience. And through that experience, I learned that at the time, and maybe still today, it was already a cutthroat business. And then for people of color, it was absolutely like murderous. You would, you would die. <laughs> it was just not a place. That's where careers go to die. And so <laughs> um, when they started describing how they were able to live their dream, because they all, all the folks that we talked to, they dreamt of being a journalist. But when they started describing how they lived their dream, I realized it didn't really resonate. Like I do want to impact the masses. I do want to share information. I do want to inform but maybe that's not the way that I'm supposed to do it. So in my 20s, you asked about career aspirations in college. 
I didn't do that in my 20s, actually, because I didn't know what I wanted. I, I knew what I, the base of what I wanted to do, but I didn't know the avenue. So um, in my 20s, I just worked. Hmm. <laughs> I, just had, I had jobs. And you were, you were still certainly carrying all of that emotion and, like you said, layers of heavy coats. I mean, if that's not a visual. So in your 20s, you were still, still carrying that, not able to address it, forcing it away at all costs? Absolutely. Absolutely. And by then, I was really, really involved in ministry. And so um, we, in ministry, we were taught, and I wish I could say that this was just one church, but it, it wasn't. In ministry, we were taught to accessorize our layers of coats. You know, it's not like there's a real practical way to be freed from this. There were no steps. There were no, you know, building of processes. There was just, you know, accessorize, make it look pretty, get some nice earrings and some shoes, you know, uh, say vocabulary that puts out there that you're doing well. And then when you're not really doing well, just, just go home and pray about it, you know. Um, and then as I started to be in leadership positions in ministry, um, that it was even more so heavy on accessorize. You don't let the people see you going through because they're looking to you. So whatever your problems are, you got to hold on to them. You got to keep them. Don't give them to the people. So um, while that didn't resonate with me, um, I did it, you know, for, for a long time. I did it. And even with our peers, there was no conversations like that that were necessarily allowed because then people make thoughts about you that you're not stable in some way or the other and then opportunities get taken. So again, heavy coats, learning to accessorize along the way as opposed to be free from it. After that phase in your early 20s, uh, you, you had told us about um, later, you know, several years later or, or anytime down the road, did you have quote unquote healthier intimate relationships? Nope. Um, I stopped all of the ex excess um, and, and I definitely had relationships, but they weren't healthy because at that point, I guess this, the phase that I'd moved to was looking to others to be for me what I was intended to be for myself. Mm. I love that idea. Um, only now in my life do I really understand that because I too spent uh, past years, you know, trying to find the comfort, trying to find the solace in others to, as they say, complete you. But really that's, you know, in however you relate or define that, that's what you're doing. And as cliche as it sounds, nobody can do that for you except yeah. you. And you found that. Yeah. Yeah. And you, I learned it because if I rely on somebody else to complete me, that means I'm accepting whatever they have and I might be a circle and they're a square. So now you're quote unquote completing me, but now I'm not a circle. I'm some weird misshapen thing. Um, yeah. Was there a time, let's get into your thirties now, let's say through this, was there a time where you eventually or consistently said, you know what, there is more to me than all this. I have to crawl my way out. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, you're using all the right words. <laughs> that's actually absolutely what I did. And it was like late, late 20s and into my 30s, those things started to resonate. Okay, Charlene, there's, there's more to you. Not there's more to life than this. There's more to you than this. 
what is the pattern? I started seeing patterns. <clears throat> I started seeing the same outcome, though I'm dating different people. And it's just like, now you're a different person, but the same thing is happening. And when I, I think it happened after my marriage ended. I don't think I mentioned that I got married. <laughs> um, when my marriage ended, because I was taught that marriage was the dun dun dun, dun of everything. Like once you get married, that's it, you've arrived. And I got the same thing in the marriage that I got in all of the casual relationships. And so late 20s, early 30s, I started crawling out. I started saying, okay, it's almost like if you smell something cooking and you're like, I want to go wherever that's cooking and it's a faint scent. And so you start to follow it. Like, and you know, that's what that was with me following that faint scent, that thing that's in that beauty inside of me, where is it? I know it's there. Um, I started to notice that I was the common denominator in all of that. And not in the way that says it's my fault, in the way that says there's something about my mindset, my practices, my habits that need to change. So how in the world did you get out quote unquote, of this? Did you seek professional help? Was there specific things you did? What were they? Um, all of the above. So I didn't, start, I didn't start seeking professional help actually until recent years. Um, I, I asked questions. I'm a question asker. And so I started asking people. I saw people who looked like what I wanted to be. Like they looked happy. They looked healthy. They looked whole. And so I started asking them their story. What did you do? How did you do it? And I would just grab, you know, glean from them different things that resonated for me. I started researching. The internet wasn't really that big back then. So that means I was in the library. Um, I was, you know, looking how, how did great people historically make it through different. I started gathering information and really looking to see what, what applied to me, what resonated, what felt like it was something that you know, made sense, quote unquote, for my life. And so I started taking it and tweaking it and doing it. And, and to speak in practical terms, um, research, asking other people, and then again, continuing to communicate with myself about what works for me, what doesn't work for me. Does that fit? Does it work? Did it work for me then? And now it's not working so much anymore. Um, and just making the changes as I go. Honesty was a huge part of that. Because like we said in the beginning, there was a, a temptation to say, yeah, but that happened because they did that. You know, I didn't tell my family member to abuse me. I didn't tell that guy to violate me, you know, and I had to um, be honest with myself that, yeah, those things happened. And now what, you know, what, what do you learn from that? What do you know from that? What did you put out that? you know, maybe invited that. And that, again, not at all victim shaming, but this is me having to dig into the ugly parts that sometimes we don't want to go into, but I had to go there. And even if the answer was, no, that wasn't your fault, I still had to visit that place. I still had to consider that moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, um, to put it one way, it's a mature way of looking at things and it's really the way to look at things like we said earlier to take that responsibility not victim shaming not that it's your fault but it's your responsibility for your benefit to yeah. figure this out or else you're not going to figure it out right right oh 
Were you going to say something else? No, go ahead. And one of the biggest things, so honesty was huge. Another big thing was grace and gentleness and compassion. For me, I had to be gentle with myself. I had to be compassionate because as much as I wanted to find that beauty that was in me, like I wanted it like that. Um, I had to be patient with myself and I had to give myself grace because sometimes, it, it, again, it's a doozy. So it wasn't like I would say, it's my responsibility. Okay, you're right. It is our, my responsibility. No, I fought back against myself for a while because I didn't want it to be my responsibility. I wanted the other person to make this right, to fix this, to own up to what they did, to take up for me, to announce to the world, I did this thing and I messed up her life. That's never going to be clear as day. Clear as day, I heard, um, and I attribute, you know, I have, I do still have a relationship with God, and so I attribute it to his voice. I heard, what if they never do? Because that was one of my tears, one of my ooh-hoo crying moments. Like, they need to apologize. They need to say they did this. They need to, and just as clear as a bell, what if they never do? And that stuck with me for a while. I don't even remember how long, but it stuck with me because I had to face the reality that if I'm waiting for their apology, if I'm waiting for their public announcement, if I'm waiting for them to take ownership of what they did and they never do, then that means I'm never going to get to that beautiful thing that I feel inside. I can't believe how beautiful you are today. It's just hearing this story and knowing and seeing who you are and where you are today. My goodness, what, what, things specifically daily habits or changes or rituals or things over and over and over again did you put in place that you can pinpoint made all the difference um definitely journaling journaling was a huge part of 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 my world um and making the difference because i had to get it out of me some i developed a pattern of talking to myself um any way to get it out of me. Um, I love to sing. And so singing was a way to just get it out of me. I had to um, journal and be honest in my journaling and sometimes go back to my journaling and talk, communicate with myself about what I read and wrote. Um, I did a lot of I know, research again. I would talk to people. I would say, you know, these are some things that I'm dealing with what do you think about that? Like, what are some insights? What, what, do you, what is your perspective on it? Just because I didn't want just my own, you know, how they have the blinders on, just my own perspective. I wanted to hear people, again, folks who were in a position that I wanted to be in. And just getting input from others, support from my community around me. Um, gosh, and, and, and again, having those specific plans in place, knowing myself. What, what am I feeling like when I'm about to get triggered? What, what do I need to do? What, what, what's my second step? If that first step didn't work, who can I call on if, if everything is just about to just hit the fan? Um, so developing a specific plan to combat those moments when I started to dip. Um, and really just being consistent about wanting that. And as I started getting more into the clearing and out of the crawling space and starting to kind of walk, then I started to just to connect with my purpose. Because once you leave from that place of pain, that painful place can become an identity. It can become, you know, feel like it's your purpose. It's why you're here. It's to hurt. So once you start clearing and coming out of that, 
there has to be something else that you cling to. Otherwise, you know, one more situation and you'll be right back where you just crawled from. So I had to start identifying what is my purpose? Why am I here? So I started learning those things that resonated, you know, my desire to inform people, my desire to impact the masses, my desire to, you know, be a help and to start defining that and understanding what that means. And finally, really connecting to who I was created to be. What is my identity? And starting to own those things. Yeah, I could, my goodness, I could totally relate to, you said the importance of being consistent. Um, I, I spent um, decades in, you know, dark places as well. And once I was able to crawl myself out slowly, but surely, and certainly then reaching a tipping point, I then realized, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm sort of in the clear. I want to continue down this path. I, what helped me do it was really treat this like I'm in recovery, like I was an addict, which really in, in most definitions I was, and we are because we, we, we keep repeating those addictive behaviors, negative behaviors. So for me, what really helped is to say, my gosh, I'm in recovery, which means I can't let this just go and say, oh, I'll do it next week. I am consistent and consciously working to improve, to stay out of those dark places every moment of every day. And I do a a bunch of daily rituals and habits that support it just like an addict in recovery would. And that's worked for me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What, I mean, you've, you've, obviously have come so, so far. It's inspiring to see and to hear about. You're an author, you have a book, you have more underway, you're a mentor, you're a counselor, you're a facilitator, you're a coach. Um, what, what is your purpose? All of that, all of that. My purpose is to help people leave from these mindsets that are hindering them, that are keeping them back and to get into the clearing for themselves but to empower them in such a way that they don't need to rely on somebody else to show them that every single thing that they need to get into the clearing is already within them. And it just takes maybe someone, a coach, a mentor, whomever, to help them identify those things as they crawl. How did you transition into that aspect? It's so funny because I've been coaching before I knew that coaching was a thing. I was always the friend that people came to for advice. I was always the person that folks came to to help them through a sticky situation. Um, Always, like literally. And I was always a person who could see the big picture, but also those little granular details. Um, And so that's a part of what I was describing about discovering my purpose and discovering those threads of of common, uh, you know, things that repeated throughout my life knowing that all of those things started to kind of weave together and I saw that that common thread. And so um, as I was, when I went back to school in my 30s, I sat down with my guidance counselor and I just described to her what I wanted to do because I thought, I'm going to be a psychologist. I'm going to be a um, psychiatrist. And so I described to her what I wanted to do. She said, yeah, no, that's not psychology. <laughs> So she helped me um, to pick the right major. And um, so everything from there just kind of flowed out. Once I, once I discovered 
what it was called. Oh, it, it, it's coaching. Oh, okay. You know, once I discovered what it was called and it just, it just flowed out from there. Amazing. What mantra do you live by today? Every life has purpose. And the way I say that to others is your life has purpose. Let's get to it. But my mantra is definitely every life has purpose because that is what got me from my there to here is my purpose. I was hungry for my purpose. Do you find that people innately really know our purpose, but probably because a whole lot of fear, we push it aside and cover it up? Another nail hit on the head. Um, Fear, um, maybe even lack of knowledge, maybe even lack of support. Um, But I absolutely do think that there is in every single person an awareness that there is something there. and then there's different stages where people arrive with that. Like people, some folks don't know what that something is. Some folks know exactly what it is, but fear, you know, and all that other stuff keeps them from it. Do you believe that everything happens for a reason? I do. Tell me more. I do. I believe that everything happens for a reason and it's, it's not always pretty. Um, I, I, In my own story, um, to say it out loud causes some folks' eyebrows to raise and arms to cross. But if I had never been um, uh, victimized the way that I was, I wouldn't have a connection to people who've been in similar situations to tell them it is possible. My voice wouldn't resonate as strongly for some of those people because they'll be like, oh, you've never been through this before. Um, But because I have, I can say, it does get better. You can move through that, not get over it. Do not like that phrase. You can move through it. You can move beyond it. Um, so I, I do. I, I think everything happens for a reason. Are you spiritual or religious today? And in what ways? Not at all religious. <laughs> religious has to do with ritual. Um, I struggle to define what I am in that category. Like I said before, I definitely still have a relationship with God. I definitely still do that. I don't uh, currently attend a church. I do visit this one church regularly because I dig. Um, he's the, the pastor who wrote the foreword to my book. I, I really dig his teaching. Um, but I'm still, I am still working to discover what that all is supposed to look like uh, for me. So I, I don't know if that's spiritual. I don't know. Hmm. What do you think happens when it's all over, when our time here on earth comes to an end? Um, What I've learned is that we go to one of two places depending on certain criteria. Um, And so uh, what I think is still something similar to that, again, I'm still trying to discover um, if I still believe that it's hell and heaven. Hmm. What is next for you, Charlene? Um, I am working on my second and third book. Um, is that what you're talking about next in terms of? Sure. Yeah. I'm working on my second and third book, and I'm also working to um, share. I've been arranged, uh, arranging conversations with different church communities around my book to have the conversation about how to create healthy communities and how folks can move through Um, the hurt that they've experienced. I've got several invitations to do small groups. 
I've got several invitations to um, do like a general, like addressing the church um, as a whole. Um, so those things are building and I'm coaching uh, folks as well. So Incredible. I will leave you with this final question, Charlene. How would you like to be remembered? I love that question. I would like to be remembered as someone who turned her pain into purpose, but didn't just keep it for herself. That I was a person who was adamant and insistent and stubborn about helping other people be able to do the same for themselves. Mm. Well, I want to jump through the speaker and reach out, embrace you for just doing everything you're doing. Um, if somebody wants to do the same, how can they best get in touch with you? Um, CharleneRFeathers.org is my website. It's got all my social media stuff on there and a way to contact me as well. Mm, well, Charlene, you are clearly a superhuman. <laughs> I... I, I mean, you're, you're so inspiring. Thank you. This conversation has really given me um, uh, so much to, to consider, to embrace, to reflect on. I want to thank you for your time today and your, your, your openness, really. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation to be a part of your show. I love it. Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in. If you want to keep the conversation going, we are here for you. If you enjoyed this conversation, let us know through a little rate and review on iTunes or wherever you consume your podcast. Listening with that, we shall part ways for the moment. And until next time, everybody, go get them. Thanks for listening to The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Make sure to subscribe through iTunes or Google Play so you can get notified every time we publish a new episode. And we'd love to hear your thoughts with an honest review on iTunes. Finally, follow us on your favorite social media platforms to keep the conversation going with Josh Carey and today's guest. Until next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.